Welcome to the Woo Woo Woman podcast. My name is Shelly and I'm your host. I'm a self-taught astrologer, modern mystic, yogic guide, and women's empowerment coach living in the South Florida area. This podcast was created with the intention to share the tools, people, and modalities that have continued to help me shift and heal to up-level my life in efforts to inspire and encourage you to do the same. Thank you so much for being with me. Hello and welcome to the Woo Woo Woman podcast. We have with us back for another round here on the pod, Mr. Scott Feinberg, and he was with us uh, not too long ago discussing his latest book, Reverse Graffiti. And if you haven't grabbed your copy, I highly suggest that you do. We'll have a link for it in the show notes. And if you missed that pod, you can head back and take a listen. It is a beautiful collective of poetry that is just so heart jerking. And he's back today talking about the Enneagram. And my own personal um, little background with the Enneagram is I know that it is a way to kind of understand your personality, but I'm not too far deep into it. So I am going to be an ear for all of you listeners out there and kind of dissect Scott's brain and his knowledge on the Enneagram and how this can be incorporated into our lives to really truly have a deeper understanding of self and navigate our life as ourselves and notice and pick up maybe different contrasts that are carried out throughout our lives in this method of using the Enneagram. So thank you so much, Scott, for coming and sharing your wealth of knowledge with this Enneagram. And I'm really excited to touch on this and really begin to build my own knowledge base on how to incorporate this um, modality because I love anything that tells me about my personality and I'm sure many of us do. And this is just another tool in the toolbox that we have as we build throughout life that can help us kind of navigate life differently and also have more self-awareness. Absolutely. Yes. To everything you just shared. And thank you so much, Shelly, for having me back on and excited to be here with you and everyone who's listening and get to have this opportunity to delve a little bit deeper into the oftentimes unconscious drivers of our human experience and have this space to get to unpack all of that so we can make the unconscious conscious and start to um, navigate with more open eyes some of our tendencies and habituations that um, operate sometimes silently as the lenses through which we view the world and and, and then, of course, it gets increasingly more interesting when those lenses start to interact with one another. So how are we in relationship? Are we aware of the other people's lenses through which they're operating? And how can we learn to speak their language? And it becomes just sort of this exponential um, <laughs> investigation of what happens when human beings are interacting with one another. And of course, so much of that is, of course, a reflection of the relationship that we keep with ourselves. And, and so this yeah. gives us an opportunity to really start to explore um, the way we started to construct the, uh, the, the ideal of personality 
at a very young age and how that part of us is oftentimes driving the car and how we can learn to um, notice when that's happening. Uh, what, are our, what are our patterns? What are our tendencies? How can we disrupt those patterns when they're not serving us and bring light to the, um, the way in which we might be able to alchemize them into healthy expressions that actually serve us in our relationships. So there's so much here, like really so, so much here yeah. to dive into. So I, I love that you're going to dissect my brain. That sounds fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm excited. That's the nurse. That's the nurse out. in me. <laughs> yeah, that's the nurse in me. I'm like, yeah, let's, let's figure this part out. So when you talk about personality, like give me a feel for like maybe what personality means as far as the Enneagram and what personality actually means in accordance to like your personal belief systems um, would be great to start. Cause I know that I have my own and I'm sure that you have your own, but um, and how it's actually, you know, defined in this uh, modality itself. Absolutely. So I love this question so much because, oh, wow, personality is such a loaded term. And, you know, even when I hear like um, Enneagram is like a personality typing tool, I I feel like a little bit of my personality begin to cringe. And it just feels like, oh, one of those like self-assessment things you do at work and yada, yada, yada. And I was like, oh, man, that really like just misses the mark a little bit. So I I love this question because it's an opportunity to, to maybe share a little deeper um, so I'm going to say it like, um, like this, that, um, I want to actually start with what is essence and then how do we begin to develop what we might call personality so we can hold the two in relationship if that's okay. Then, Absolutely. Um, so I want to say essence, um, I want to call it one's true nature, um, or, or quote unquote home right, within one's own being. So I'll utilize those terms very specifically. Um, There are certain worldviews, then we can have this conversation maybe another day, like, well, what is true nature? Is it, is it self? Is it no self? Is there a soul? Is there not a soul? Right? So depending on different wisdom traditions, there's different philosophical worldviews about all of that. So what I might present because knowing there's a variety of um, listeners with different um, senses of what feels true to them. And, and I think if you and I both investigate our own inquiry around like that question, like who am I, or maybe more objectively, what am I, then we will probably quickly come to find that our answer to that question has evolved over time. And it would probably be wise to consider that it might continue to evolve as we develop a deeper relationship with that, that mystery. So I, I like to just make it a little bit of a mystery for myself. And, um, but what I, when I think of it, not as defining it as an entity with like a very clear concrete definition, but rather um, a state of being where my resonance with truth is felt. And that's why I call it home. So I think of that as our, our true nature, um, who we are when we're not who we're not. And that true nature has some, some very particular qualities that we can link into the Enneagram. And it's a sense of wholeness. It's a sense of worth. 
And it's a sense of innate capability. So I'm gonna do my best to sort of layer the Enneagram around a little bit of yoga dharma as I came to the Enneagram through the practice um, of yoga. I had been teaching for about 15 years when I was introduced to it. So I was pretty steeped in different philosophical texts and systems of yoga and, uh, and was teaching within those frameworks, coaching within those frameworks, but lacking something that I couldn't put my finger on. And what I realized was without diverging into the world of yoga dharma, that there was um, teachings, there were teachings around true nature, about coming into identification as an ego construct, about attachment and aversion and the enmeshing of identity with thought and emotion and how to sort of disentangle ourselves from those tendencies and reconstitute our awareness back home to our true essence. But what they didn't do was give really a great deal of specificity of, uh, or offer a great deal of specificity around, well, how is it that I came to depart from my true essence? What was the causal factor in that evacuating from center um, that still causes me to evacuate? What are my triggers? How do I respond, not just with attachment and aversion, but what are the fears that I have? What are the desires that have arisen in response to those fears? What are the ideals that I operate in that show up as standards in my relationships? Um, how do I act when those ideals are met? How do I act when they're not met? How do I resolve conflict? And how do I go about meeting my own needs? And there was nothing inside of the Pantheon of Yoga's teachings that spoke in any great deal of specificity to those patterns and tendencies. As I learned the Enneagram, and they use this word personality, the more I started to realize this is what in the yoga teaching that they would call ahamkara, which is the, sort of the loose word for, for ego, which, which in etymologically translates as the I maker. Mm. The ahamkara is the I maker. And it's where we make the, the I. And, and when I was first coming into this, I would call it the false self. The one that was like the substitute for the true self. The more healing work I did in my own being, I realized that that was sort of an invalidation of the parts of me that were just trying to make it through life safely. And the wounds that I had developed and that as, as where Enneagram and yoga overlay so naturally is, is the idea of wholeness, worth and capability as the core wounds through which we start to develop this self, this personality in place of the self that we are. So I've changed the term false self to the term learned self. And that's how I define personality. I define personality as the self that I learned to be when I lost contact with the essential part of my true nature. And so instead of demonizing or demonizing um, or trying to abolish or 
or get rid of or conquer this personality, this ego, or think of it as a fraud or, or something. I just realized it was the cloak of personality. It was the cloak that I wore in order to interface with the world around me that could feel threatening as well as the world within me that could feel threatening. And the term of course, personality comes from the Greek persona and mm -hmm. which means mask. Mm -hmm. and I was so, just about to say that. <laughs> yeah. And, and so when we are, you know, little and, and of course, even up into our adulthood, we are constantly interacting with internal and external realities and how we claim a sense of identity within the ever-changing landscape of these places is really what's at stake. So it's not just a typing tool, you know, like what's your personality? It's, it, it really is a sacred technology that takes us to the very crux of the issue of, that is central to the human condition of who am I? And if we are acting as personality, then we're stifling the very life flow and sense of who we are. And so in, in Enneagram teachings, we say that personality constricts essence. When we first hear that, there's a sense of like, oh, so is personality bad? And, and it's really not, because when we're operating from essence, the idea is that essence informs or expresses through personality. So I wanna invite you to think of it almost like an instrument that your personality or ego, I use this ter those terms interchangeably, is like a flute, right? And if you were um, blocking the energy flowing through that and trying to create from that, then it couldn't actually create sound. So it needs, essence is the air that's blowing through. But likewise, if you didn't have a flute at all and you just blow into the air, it's not gonna make a beautiful sound. So personality is instrument and we don't know how to play the instrument and we start blowing into the flute, we're moving our fingers all over the place. It's gonna make all these distorted ripples of, of, of sound waves moving out, which is when we're operating from the unhealthy ranges um, or unskilled ranges of personality. But when we learn how to really master the instrument and play it, then we see that instrument or personality gives shape for essence to express itself through and make sound. And then as we learn how to play with other instruments, we can have this entire symphony. Mm -hmm. and, and so our work is to essentially not have to, but get to learn how to play the instrument that we were given. So that's how I see it. That I love that so much. It's so beautifully put. As you always do, you have such a way with words that just kind of make everything make sense, but on a different level because you have those beautiful analogies that you weave in. And, you know, something that I wrote down here as you were speaking is, you know, the person in your physical reality and the person that's displayed in your physical reality is sometimes, like you said, constructed by the circumstances that we've experienced throughout our lives that have kind of given us what you would say, or as you would define it, the lesson, but that lesson is still carried within us and can sometimes play out in various different ways and fashions. And 
um, another quote that I used to kind of connect to was your personality creates your reality, right? But that is that comes twofold. It's not only, as you said, now I'm seeing it in a little, you know, in a different light, but it's not only using the essence of who we are in conjunction with our experiences to integrate them into being this whole entity that navigates life and moves through life more in a intentional matter or more in a um, flow and movement instead of a separation of like that ego is bad or like you shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't focus on that or, you know, whatever the case may be, but it's the understanding that they're both part of our current reality, you know, and they may have masked parts of who we are for, for a period of time, but when we begin to unlearn what we've learned, we come back to this like deeper space within ourselves that integrates those experiences and doesn't see them as quote unquote bad, but sees them as a part of this process to learning how to read the music, learning how to play the music and learning how to also listen to the music around us in the forms of other people, in the form of circumstances and experiences that allow us to really move with instead of not necessarily against, but in separation of like attempting to try and separate. Absolutely. That's so well said. And, and I'll piggyback off that a little bit and saying that one of the subtle um, sometimes unconscious and often in our blind spot ways of doing that is in the fundamental unseen disposition we have towards the work itself. And by that, I mean that we can be here listening to this podcast, talking about this, becoming interested. Maybe I'll do some investigative work. We approach our sort of healing journey, if you will, with the, by, by positing that the foundation is I'm separate and then I do this work and I become free, I become whole, I become capable. So we actually assert the reality of the illusion in the name of overcoming it. And so we're, we've already kind of stacked the deck against ourselves. So one of the things that I like to do when I do this work is I begin with the assertion of essence. So when somebody says, I'm a six, I'm a four, I'm a nine, I love to catch that. Uh, just a little tongue in cheek, a little fun with it, but saying actually your personality isn't who you are to you're not. You, mm. so we don't, so we don't start by saying I am this number. It's, it's, we start by saying that, or, or saying like, how do I become free? But to me, a better question is how do I become unfree? Yeah. And you know, what's really interesting, like listening to you, like the book that I'm kind of working off, which we know is like the Bible is the wisdom of the Enneagram. And it literally says on there, the complete guide to psychological and spiritual growth for the nine personality types. And this is by Don Richard um, Risso and Russ Hudson. Um, and in it, it really does kind of direct you in that, like you, like you are this number kind of a thing in the beginning as you're going through the tests and everything, but it's a really beautiful way that you put it and kind of present it in such a way that it's like, not that this is not who you are essentially, but like, this is just a part of the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an essential part of understanding 
who we show up as. And that's, you know, instrumental. Again, it's, it's the central part of the, um, you know, the work that we do if we're, we're invested in um, aligning our external reality with the truth of our internal reality. And so we might start though by saying that I am inherently whole, worthy, and capable. And if there is any freedom to seek, it is freeing myself from the idea that I am not already free. Mm -hmm. And in service of that, rather than trying to essentially be the I, the learned I on the path to becoming the unlearned I, all the while strengthening the muscle of identification as the learned I, we begin by asserting the reality of essence that oftentimes has understandably learned to pick up tools in service of safety that are survival beliefs and survival tendencies that when we learn to meet the unmet need of that self and allow them to feel loved, tended to, and safe, they'll put those down and then they become integrated organically. So there's nothing to sort of overcome or achieve. And the, the quote unquote awakening isn't something that exists out there one day down the road when I've done enough of this unbecoming and I've done enough of this unlearning and I've done enough of this clearing. It's actually available to you in the immediacy of this moment. And in this moment, when we can touch into who we are, then we're having a moment of connection as essence or we're not. And it's this process of remembering and forgetting in each moment that brings us um, into relationship with this truth. And so I try to really approach it with the orientation of curiosity and compassion as the two primary tools that we're bringing with us. So if I get triggered, I know that's happening. Like there's a saying in Enneagram that essence can never be threatened or harmed. And so when I know that I'm triggered, I know the triggers in my personality. And instead of operating from it as a sort of enmeshed reactive tendency or subjugating it as a sort of spiritual bypass, I sit down, I attempt (laughs) in, in all of my humanness to sit down with it and become curious. How old, like, first off, is this a familiar reaction? Mm-hmm. And, you know, how old do I feel right now? Is this my 15-year-old showing up? Is this my 27-year-old showing up? Is this my four-year-old showing up right now? And then I can st- sit with, with him and say, like, hey, buddy, like, I totally get it. I hear you. I'm with you. Like, that makes total sense that you're feeling scared right now and the fear of abandonment and you hear mom and dad fighting and, and it's giving you this feeling of conflict. So you're withdrawing. Oh, that's where I learned to withdraw. Like, ding, ding. That's a big part of Enneagram is how do we meet our needs? Mm-hmm. My, my type happens to be a withdrawn type. So I, I, I shut down and I go in. Well, that's when I learned to do that. But when I can learn to meet him and say, hey, I'm, I'm sitting with you under that pile of clothes hidden in your closet you know, so you don't hear, hear them fighting right now. And he's like, well, thanks for not leaving me alone. And then he starts to trust me. And then instead of him showing up and, and abandoning next time I get triggered, I get to say, sit here, you're with me, you're with safe, I, you're, you're, you're safe. I, 
I got you and I'm not going anywhere, but I'm going to do the talking and, and I'm going to do this. I start to rewire that pattern so that the next time it starts to gradually default back to the new pattern that I'm putting in. And so the, the sense of bringing validation and empathy to the parts of ourselves that have been fragmented off as a way of protecting is how we come to integrate. And I would say integration is transformation and integration is, is healing when we're able to integrate the past uh, with the present and, and not have the past drive the ship. And, um, you know, then we're starting to really come into a, a deeper sense of what I experience as, as rest and relief. Um, like you don't have to hold the, the exhaustion of maintaining a personality that comes, um, carries with it a great deal of standards that says you have to treat me this exact way in order for me to feel okay. I start to tend to my needs to regulate my own nervous system, to regulate my emotions and energy. Um, and then I choose relationships with people that I feel safe enough to be vulnerable with, to show those parts of me and that will honor them too. And that's, um, yeah, that's sort of how it looks in life. Yeah. It's almost like a new, like seeing your, your happenings with a new pair of eyes and almost allowing your inner eye to, to be your, your focal point essentially. Right. Cause like, if you're, you're constantly working off of these habitual happenings that like you said, are somewhat programmed as like the reaction to, and you get carried away by that, then you're really not essentially trying to be the observer of your situation as if you were looking in and being able to be guided by what's happening. So it's, it's like almost as if you're looking at situations from various different vantage points. And I'm sure that with every situation, you know, just like anything else, there's various different perspectives that can be taken on. Um, but I know personally, like if I'm, if I, if I'm challenged by something, I usually do a yoga practice and my intention for that practice is reveal to me like the root of this, like, where does this stem from? And through that ability to soften and to still myself within the answers end up evolving and growing into something similar. Like you said, like, Oh, wow. Like I had this fear of abandonment or had this fear of abandonment because everyone always seemed to leave like from my father, like from the first couple relationships. And then it clicks and it's like, you're safe now. Like you're held, you're supported. Like you don't, you don't need to have that, you know, anticipation for what you think might come and it hasn't even come, you know, but again, it's like that hard wire that, you know, was placed there. And I can't even tell you when it was happening, I couldn't tell you at that moment without doing this practice, why, why it was there. But when I intended to go there and when I intended to see it and meet it, it revealed itself to me fairly quickly. And it's so powerful how powerful we truly are, but sometimes we mask that with who we've told ourselves who we are, essentially. Yeah, that's it. I mean, yes, yes, yes. I'm so glad this is a podcast and we have that recorded. Again, I think last <laughs> time we, we did a podcast, there was something you said, I was like, mm, I need to go yeah. back and listen to that again. 
Yeah, so well stated. And I love that you put it within the context of your yoga practice. And, um, you know, as yoga teacher, practitioner, meditation um, is, is at the heart of the work for me too. So whether it's asana or meditation or in my coaching practice, what where this comes into play practically is to use yoga for a moment as the context for your experience is when you went into that inquiry and, you know, I like to say like, like practice asana as inquiry and see like what is showing up somatically is so important to our healing work. So what you came to inside of that inquiry led you through a certain pattern. What Enneagram shows us, what it demonstrates is that those patterns, while unique, there's also an element of universality to them. So they're personal and mm. universal. So there's somewhat predictable patterns that might tend to happen. And the more that like, as, as those think of them as sort of like archetypal roads that the psychological self can travel down and to equip ourselves with the knowledge of what the terrain looks like is to empower one's journey. And so as a teacher, if I'm cognizant of those roads and those patterns, then the cues that I might offer as inquiries to various koshas or layers of one's being are going to speak to the different tendencies of, of various Enneagram types. So I utilize that within my teaching practice, but also in my own personal practice. And if we could go a little deeper in, I'll demonstrate this to you. So the, um, for those of us that aren't familiar with the Enneagram, it essentially starts off like a circle. And then on the periphery of the circle, are these nine core personality types. There's lots of sort of subtypes and it becomes very variegated and nuanced. But the nine types when we're taking, today we're taking a little bit more of a superficial glance at it. Um, the nine types are um, divided essentially into three triads. And so you can almost imagine it like an upside down peace sign. And inside of that, your your top triad they're not in any top where their, their position is irrelevant but the um, top section is the instinctive or physical or body triad and then to the right you have the emotional or heart or feeling triad and then to the left you have the cerebral head or thinking triad so in each triad there are also three primary types right and it's when we're first learning it it's helpful to think about what the triads represent before we actually think about the types and so we're going to spend a little bit of time there with the, the triads and I'm going to link it back to this idea of how it might inform one's approach to their healing work whether that's yoga meditation all the different expressions it can take so what the triads first glance represent is where the primary struggle of integrating personality with essence resides. Because really the goal, let's look at that for a moment, is to um, move through life in such a way that honors personality, right? And honors the essence in, in the sense that like we start to make personality almost like that transparent instrument we get to 
expressed through. So we don't want it taking over where we're operating from personality. We want to operate from essence and through personality. But the, the thing I wanted to emphasize is that every time we catch ourselves operating from personality, it's an opportunity for us not to subjugate it, but to say, oh, you just sent a flare as telling me to go look over here. Thank you so much. So we alchemize triggers into reminders. Mm, now I love that. Now, right? So now we've got a built-in way to flow with the grain, no matter what comes up. So I'm either in the flow, or if I hit an ebb, it reminds me of where to go to come into flow. So we're constantly sort of like an expert martial artist or watching someone do Tai Chi, they're just move, moving energy in such a way to flow with the stream. And so what's in the way becomes the way. And that, so that's sort of the underlying approach. So what triad tells us is where our primary struggle resides in finding that fluidity uh, and, you know, that natural uh, reciprocity between personality and essence, right? So we're not trying to get rid of anything. And inside of that, we can look at what um, arises. Well, let's look at like what the core wound is that tends to be present in, in each triad. So in the instinctive or physical triad, which is inclusive of types eight, nine, and one, then we are, are underlying wound typically, and again, this is where we depart from essence, has to do with a sense of um, losing a sense of autonomy, um, which I wouldn't describe necessarily in this context as like um, separate um, identity autonomy, which is how we sometimes Western connotatively look at that, but more in the sense of I'm whole unto myself, right? So a lot of times codependents can show up in these spaces. They can be really can show up differently in all of them, to be honest, but in a sense of my fundamental self feels more present, alive and here in the company of someone else. And, uh, and so the, these types um, will, their work revolves around finding a sense of ground and wholeness within themselves. When that is not um, what personality does is it looks outward for what it believes itself to be missing inwardly. So mm -hmm. we tend to use personality as a surrogate identity that then looks for someone else or something else to provide the thing it believes itself to be missing, um, which is typically some sort of a desire that has arisen in response to a fundamental fear and the mitigation strategies we've constructed around it, the mitigation against the realization of the fear. And so each triad will tend to have its own emotional correlate. And so in the instinctive or gut or physical triad, what that emote, the first sort of trigger response tends to be on the spectrum of rage. So if I'm operating in healthier spectrums of self, that might look like irritation, frustration, annoyance. If I'm in my average levels, it might look more like anger. And if I'm in my unhealthy levels, it might look more like rage. Mm -hmm. Now, how that shows up with the different types is going to be so different, you know, and we'll get into that as we get there, but just to move to the next triad, 
the feeling tribe primarily struggles with worth and in it's what where that manifests as uh, emotionally is on the shame spectrum right and then we uh, and so what do we do we look outside of ourselves again in this case for confirmation of worth because we're holding shame perhaps at a lower level it's feeling um as like guilt um uh sadness um those are the energies of the heart and they're typically also another little uh, aside here is that the gut triad is um, primarily working with the challenge of integrating what is in the present. The shame triad is, is a little more focused on integrating past, right? When you think like you're not ashamed of something that's coming in the future, shame and guilt are things that are integrations of past. And then as we move to the head center, it tends to go a little more forward thinking. And the, um, the tendency here is to move towards fear. And if you think about what is fear, right? We're not afraid of what's happened in the past. Our experience of the past will cause us to, our brain to neurologically wire towards fear in the future. But what we are engaged in is future outcome and how that might turn out. What is our relationship to uncertainty? And then what is the tool that we picked up? Did we pick up control as a way to right, mitigate against the realization of unwanted outcome? And then you can go right down the line and then anxiety manifests in the body and, you know, as a feeling sense in our nervous system. So the tendency you can see for, for present integration, past integration, future integration as primary drivers. And then the, um, the core wound here is often around because it's connected to future and fear ability. As does connect a little bit into yoga and ancient Tantra, there was a teaching called the three malas. And, uh, and I've never seen these things brought together before. It's just that I happened to spend a lifetime in yoga dharma and then in the Enneagram dharma. And I was like, oh, wow, this really superimposes quite naturally that the, the three malas or core wounds in tantric teaching is um, I, the, these, these learned beliefs of I am not whole, I am not worthy, and I am not capable. And I was like, oh, well, look at that. <laughs> that's, the, that's the Enneagram. Wow. Yeah. And then inside that you have like further delineations, right? And then, so from triad, it then goes down to type. And so before we get into type, I just wanted to pause and offer you the uh, invitation of dissecting. <laughs> yeah. You know, what came to mind as you were kind of bringing the two together, um, like when did this all like, ha like start, when did this whole thought process start um, and also I know that like, I think you're going to get a, get into types, but like, how do we find our type? Um, and is like that the end all be all and essentially, you know, how this can apply to, or how you've seen it apply to different people's lives. And I can share my little tidbit, um, with it as well, but yeah, let's start with, with where it came from. Yeah. So it's really interesting in the history of the Enneagram is um, 
it's really fascinating. It's um, oftentimes attributed to Gurdjieff is his name. And um, he was, you know, posthumously regarded like in his own life, he wasn't uh, ever really recognized, which is interesting, but essentially was not after anything having to do with personality, but like what were the laws of the universe and life and trying to put it into uh, a map. And, um, and he and his different colleagues would go into different countries and study their different traditions and teachings and then have these sort of symposiums and come back and compare notes and start, they started to map this thing called the Enneagram. And then it wasn't until later, like in like the, like the 1960s, there's actually a breakdown in Wisdom of the Enneagram where they talk about um, this, where um, then it became a psychological teaching and ultimately it's still getting unpacked. I mean, the way I'll describe Enneagram to you today is going to be different than somebody else will in the sense of it's a little bit of an open source technology, especially mm. as you get into the more nuanced layerings of like stress currents and integration currents, which are like, you know, when you look at the Enneagram in, inside the circle, you see like different uh, shapes. So you see like a triangle in the center and then you see this like one, two, three, four, like a hexagonal um, sort of geometric shape and they each point at like at each, if you go to each personality, I know you and I are actually looking at a map right now, but if you look at each personality type, see how there's two points, mm -hmm. two lines yeah. that are converging there. So we really think of them as like from the origin point, there's a line going out in two different directions. So some some teachings will say, for example, like one of those currents is operating under stress and one is operating right. under moving towards essence and one is mm -hmm. moving away from essence, but they look at it like, I'll give you the example of like nine goes to six under stress um, and, and then nine goes to three under health. And we could talk about that, what, it, what that is in another conversation. But the point I wanted to make is that other you know, facilitators will say, well, nine goes to six. And then even as nine, you'll then move through to three before coming back to nine. Um, some teachings focus on like, you really do the work within your type and others focus on, we have all of, all of these inside of us and we have a primary and that's our starting point, the center of gravity of our work, but to really be complete that this whole picture of these nine types are all inside of us and we should do the work of all the types. Um, and and I, I actually really love that because it feels really whole and complete. Um, so anyway, so in, in terms of, uh, is it the be all end all? Um, you know, I think that it's a, it's a very comprehensive tool, but at the end of the day, like our essence isn't something that exists in, a, in the map because maps, some even if they're mirrors that point back or reflect back to the map maker, the idea is that um, truly awakening is a, is a quality of presence, not an achievement or an outcome or even information, right? A wisdom that we may have accumulated. So it's really, it's not about what I know, but who I'm being, you know? Right. So I, I think it's, it's a tool. Um, so cool. 
it kind of like reminds me too of like the way um astrology and the tarot is also used as a tool right it's like almost like this reflective tool that is open to translation and within that truths come right and it's it could be an individualistic truth so like when i first got my you know my natal chart read, I was like, wow, I feel so seen, so heard and understood. And then once I started to do my own and move through my chart alone with myself, I ended up having a completely different perspective on it. So, and it's still growing and evolving, you know, as I do it, you know, every month and sometimes certain days of of that month. Um, But it's really beautiful how there are so many practices out there and modalities at, that we can use as tools that help us um, get a different vantage point and perspective, but also the ability and the openness to infuse it with those layers of awakening. So like, for instance, back when I first, you know, became privy with the Enneagram, I was very, I was maybe like, I think a couple years into my yoga teaching and yoga practices And I ended up teaching in a retreat. They did a workshop and it just kind of scratched the surface. And there's so much to go into with this. But um, with that, there was a perspective of what I saw the seven being, whereas now talking with you, I could see the personality type of seven kind of taking on a new shape and a new form. And as you said earlier, it's like this ability to evolve, the ability to change and the openness to allow that to flow through us instead of just saying to yourself, well, I am a seven, I am this way, or I am, you know, this and I am that. It's it's allowing yourself the ability to move with um, and and observe with as it's kind of like unfolding for you 100 it's not a it's not a fixed and finite um statement of you know who you are or what your personality might be um one of the things i appreciate about the enneagram actually in in regards to this is that it it accounts for this in what it calls um, spectrum of health and so within each type, there's said to be nine ranges of, of health, which we can think of as sort of like, um, again, to go back to the visualization of the flute, imagine if like inside of the flute, there had been collected like a bunch of sand and dirt and twigs and leaves and things like that. So like how transparent and clear is the instrument? Um, Cause that's gonna impede the flow of, of essence or light coming through the vehicle of our personality. And so <clears throat> the, there's three primary ranges, healthy, average, and unhealthy. And then within those three, there's three more. And it sounds very categorical and linear and sort of like, right, it's but what I, what, yeah, but what I came to appreciate when I saw that is more fluid and not, I, I've achieved, I have now unlocked level four. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's more that like, as I move through my life in any given moment, that reflects back to me the tendencies of my personality. So I know whether I can actually trust myself. Like, for example, like, isn't it interesting to try to discern in any given moment if like when we get a nudge from inside, if that was fear or if that was intuition, they can feel so similar. Oh yeah. And I've been there so many times. I'm like, where is this coming from? Is this my intuition speaking to me? But you know what I started to do is I feel my body. 
And if my heart's going, then I know it's like anxiety and it's not there. But if I, if like I'm physically at peace, then it's, I feel like it's more driven and connected to my intuition. So I I really love that. And I'm so glad because you were talking about like, let's talk about some practical examples of how this shows up in life. So I love that for you as a seven, your body is available to you, right? As a reliable resource. For me, when I'm operating in personality as nine and I'm triggered, my body's offline. So Mm. my body is my least reliable resource. It's where I need to bring my work to, but it's my least reliable resource in this moment. And so I might be able to connect clarity of understanding inside of my thinking center, but for you, it's your thinking center that has proven unreliable. So you resourced to the body. So always, right. So, so yeah, even like when I'm doing the tarot and I'm like reading, reading tarot for people, like I'll feel things in my physical body, like whether it be chills or like tightness, tension, heaviness in the heart, like my body tells me before anything comes through me. It's so wild. And I didn't even really know that about the seven, to be honest, but that is how this works. You know, it's like really applicable. Absolutely. And it, it tells us um, everything that we um, essentially are, what, what is unavailable to us in the moment where we may have, um, you know, where we say like in, in, in trauma work, the front brain goes offline uh, mm-hmm. in, and when we lose connection with that prefrontal cortex. So our instrument starts to feel unreliable. So if I can remember to look down at my spectrums of health and say, these are the thoughts I tend to think when I'm in my um, slipping from healthy to average right? Um, so those like, like warning signals. And that these are the thoughts I tend to think when I'm slipping from average to unhealthy. Those are my red flags. Um, so it starts to give me a reliable reflection of, um, of saying, you know what, I might not speak from this space. I might actually come back to where I can find my safety but how do I do that like how you do that as a seven is going to be very different than how I do that as a nine and and that's why to go back to you and your yoga mat it's well think about it if I've if I'm dysregulated somatically asana is an incredible tool to put me back in my body whereas a seven is going to disconnect more at the um, cognitive level and you know sevens sevens want to um, essentially like take in life so when you were like I met this teacher on retreat and this teacher <laughs> asked me to do retreat and I got asked to do this thing and the keys and I'm going to start a part like that's my life looks like the Enneagram <laughs> it's so true and then of course you're bordering on your eight and that's your little bit of like don't fuck with me and yeah like and you have that in you kind of feel how it's like it's like your backup. It's like, I'll pull it out if I need to. Don't make me oh, pull yeah. it out, you know? And, uh, you know, when you're talking to your husband and you're like, yeah, I need to speak louder. <laughs> so you pull it out, right? So your eight is sort of coloring your seven. And yeah. And sort of flavoring it like a spice in a dish. Yep. Yeah, and they call me saucy Sonia in high school. 
Um, (laughs) but what's interesting is, and this is just like a little bit of a backstory and I'm, I'm an open book and like, I, I, like I am who I am, whatever, but, um, I was, you know, heavily drinking, going to clubs and bars and like, I would get into physical fights, physical fights to the point where like, I got arrested, um, like the ability to finish nursing school was like teeter tottering and that rage came about. And like, I, you know, I've done the work and I still have these like little bouts of like anger, but it's not anywhere near where it was, but it's, it's, it's an unpacking, right. It's very layered, but, um, to, to kind of bring this forward is I realized that my, my anger was a repressed sadness and the rage would come about when people's boundaries, whether they were my own or my friends were penetrated and, you know, um, you know, not acknowledged and just not taken into consideration, my rage would like, it would be livid, like fist fights, like you name it, the whole, I had to go to court, like the whole nine and people were like you, I was like, yeah, that was, that was who I was because that was like my fighting response that, that shield. And what I've, what I've been kind of, um, bringing forth recently was more so like the ability to know that I had that shield of the warrior and that fighter, but the ability to also look behind that shield and know that there is a, a lot more to learn on the other side, looking on instead of charging on. So this is so beautiful. I want to show it to you in, in visual here as we're looking at the chart and I'll explain it for folks who are listening. Um, so first off, like I wanted to, I, I had sort of earmarked that to, to share with you that in our last podcast, you had presenced the, the analogy of the shield. And I mm-hmm. thought like how, how perfect that is for having the eight in your personality, right? That just that you would even choose shields, Right. Um, and I shoot mine often ones that come to like machetes, I'm nine, eight wings. So I share that eight with you. And I, I was just sharing um, with my partner the other day, how I feel my eight always come up as a protective instinct, whether that's protecting mm. me and little Scott, or it's protect, protecting anyone else. Or like, if I'm like, it, like paying attention to politics and I'm like, that's, you know, and anytime I feel something is unjust, um, yeah. eight comes out. And so, so if we were to look at yours, so, so, you know, your, your enthusiastic self, your seven is when integrated with essence at its highest expression, it is like where you are like doing the things you're doing now. I'm hosting this retreat and inviting people into this self-inquiry and growth and you're experiencing life to the fullest. You're inspired and you're inspiring and you have this sort of inexhaustible font of energy to give to life in the world and your family and your community. Now at a lower spectrum of health, if you were operating in let's say lower average levels, that might look like um, sort of, uh, you ever see the, the kite borders and mm-hmm. you know how they are like, they're kind of flying and then they skim and then they like shoot up into the air and then they skim and they shoot up into the air. Um, that's kind of how I visualize sevens. It's like, they want to surf the surface mm-hmm. as, mm-hmm. as sometimes a way of, it appears like I'm free spirited, 
but I'm actually in avoidance of looking at what lies beneath because my fear is actually being trapped in pain and to Mm. avoid the feeling of being trapped and seeing what I don't want to see, I just keep taking in more experience. So I'm, I'm just trying to collect and collect and collect experiences rather than planting roots and going down and in. And so when we start to look at seven combined with eight, then when somebody brings up something that seven doesn't want to confront, the eight comes out sort of like the Hulk coming out of Bruce mm-hmm. Banner. And then, um, and then they come back in. Now, you also have, if you follow your lines out of seven, you have the reformer and the reformer is the one that takes up, like wants to reform society and wants to reform culture and wants to reform people and like shows up as <coughs> that space. So you have that in you that like you want to contribute to making things better, helping the world, helping people. Mm-hmm. And then you also, if you follow down, have the five and five is the investigator wow, here we are investigating what makes things work <laughs> and how we move. So you can start to see the, the relevance of having an understanding of these tools, but we can go Absolutely. deeper. You know, we can, I think for today, what might be helpful is to add in two more layers. So people really leave with something rich and substantive. Um, <clears throat> and so when we're figuring out our, our types, and I think <clears throat> you asked earlier, like, how do we go about figuring this out. I think going to the, you know, the people that wrote the book, um, Riso and Hudson, uh, that you're reading, they have enneagraminstitute.com. The Riso Hudson Enneagram type indicator, the RETI test is a wonderful long form test um, to be able to um, really do a deeper analysis. And then you know, from there, it's, it's infinite. This is what I use as um, part of my coaching intake is I start there with people. So we get a, a lay of the land, so to speak of how, what, what is the land and the terrain they've been traveling. But I wanted to offer yeah. a couple little pieces. Um, so how we come to meet our needs, how we come to meet our needs. So I mentioned, I used you and I as the example, since we're both present, that we share um, having an eight as a wing, right? So when your challenger comes up, it gets in fist fights. It got yep. in fist fights when, when you were, uh, when you weren't as integrated as you are now. Um, when my challenger comes up, it wants to debate. Mm. Right? Yeah, and um, and it wants to judge. It's like I'm gonna judge you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you're like I'm gonna punch you. So, yeah, I'm like and, and, I'm like I can't I can't have my nails too long because I still got to be able to make this <laughs> just in case. Right, you so never nine, know. So you never know. <laughs> might have to pull it up. So yeah, you so you can see how the enthusiast flavoring of challenger is different than the peacemakers version. Right of challenger right so yeah so i so fascinating i love this and sort of like who are we as yoga teachers like look like as an enthusiast you know you what kind of music do you play how light is your room you know do you teach like upbeat music in light rooms with vinyasa and you know and i like Mm -hmm. dark dark rooms candle lit um you know, some instrumental kind of stuff, do adding in 
meditation, uh, you know, so it's a very different experience than um, it, it is for what you might convey. So how you might flavor your approach is so different than so, I might. You know. Yeah. So what's interesting is definitely for like the more energetic flows, it's definitely more upbeat. I like light. I like being outside. Um, but when it comes to when I teach yin, yin is one of my favorite classes to teach. And I'm just like lights off on your back. Like, let's get down, let's get down and in. And I think that it's like a really interesting, like balance between the dual, right? Because it is so different energetically, but yin feels like home not that vinyasa doesn't but yin feels like home and it feels like i touch home base there too within my own practices and i can get really like i i like it dim because i i feel like when when it's darker the opportunity or the invitation to close your eyes and allow that awareness to go in is so much more palpable than doing a yin class lit or, you know, Absolutely. in the open or in the sun. Yeah, I, I, I feel you. And so this is so great. So I appreciate you sharing your experience because what I loved is we used the idea of home earlier and you just said like that yin is home. Yeah. And so when, and we had talked about operating from personality or operating from essence. So when I gave the description of your class, that like if it was light and vibrant and um, flowing, <clears throat> notice how that aligns with personality. But yeah. we always, in the yoga sutras, there's a teaching called Pratipaksha Bhavana, which translates as cultivating the opposite to bring us into balance. And so the idea here is that your spiritual maturity, your spiritual maturation, the integration work that you've done has been one of slowing down and turning in and coming home. And so that experience of you being able to say, but I really feel at home in the slow, close to the earth, with the lights a little dark, it's indicative of that's when essence is expressing through personality and the result is home. And so that's so powerful just as a mirror for you to reflect back to you. Yeah. And you know, it makes so much more sense hearing you say that because what ended up happening, my, you know, spiritual growth and evolution. Like when I went to teacher training, I loved yin still. Um, and I knew that I wanted to teach it, but at that point I was marathon running. I was kickboxing. I was hot power flow. I wanted my ass handed to me every time I went into any form of a workout, I suffered an injury and I had to slow down and I ended up literally falling into yoga as more of the predominant practice in my life. And it brought me to the work in and I felt things and experienced things and experienced that calm and that peace that I really didn't know I needed because I was masking it and distracting myself in the doing instead of allowing myself to be in the being. Absolutely. And so there it is again with the masking, right? So it shows yeah. my personality has sort of co-opted the, the experience. And then for somebody else, it might look different. So my work in 
teaching to, to juxtapose, I would tell myself like, we need to swim in the shallow end. Like we need to come out of that, that deep dark cave and come into the world and into the body and into movements. Movement is medicine. Going yoga became supernatural to me, like yin and all of that. But, you know, taking a, a power vinyasa class this week and going to the gym a few times has what is what has brought me closer to balance and putting a charge, real active charge back in the body. And so mm -hmm. um, to all, the, all, all this being said, my point in bringing it up is that how we go about meeting our needs. And so in each triad, you'll have three ways of meeting where one will attempt to meet their own needs. One style is assertive. That happens to be where yours is as a seven. Um, one style is withdrawn, albeit in a different triad. That's where mine is as a nine. And then one style will be dutiful. Right? So in, if we were to look at the top in the, in, in the instinctive physical or gut triad, we have the challenger <clears throat> is assertive. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, the peacemaker is withdrawn and the reformer is dutiful. Mm. Typically, we have a felt sense of what assertive and withdrawn mean. Um, but <clears throat> dutiful is where we tend to get a little hung up. So um, I'll just say it like this, that in a dutiful type, we tend to orient ourselves when we're when a need is feeling unmet to how do I align with the ideal of my super ego structure what am I supposed to do to do it well and do it right so a lot of times there's embracing of systems approaches like Enneagram or you know Imago as a dialoguing technique um, or you know understanding the this course that I was taking told me to do these three steps or um, also like how we just navigate life. Like if I, I'm going to, it's really important to me to, um, make a commitment and follow through with that commitment. If I say, I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be on time or I'm going to be early, like that dutiful nature and there's safety in that, um, for mm. a withdrawn type, like myself, like I might, when I feel a need unmet, my first inclination is to turn in and, and, and go into my own self and start to figure out what's happening. Now, if someone's in a relationship with me, especially if they're an assertive or dutiful type, they, that might trigger an abandonment wound because they're like, where did he go? Well, you went in. So you can start to see the relational yeah. context playing out. Now, the assertive goes out to meet its need. It goes out and gets it. And sometimes that can be healthy and proactive and other times that can um, be crossing a boundary or um, violating um, like in whether that's abusive behavior or um, any number of, of things that could show up in ways that are sort of uh, unhealthy tendencies. And then you wanna start to look at the positions of your types um, in terms of your wing and if you, you know, like looking at your seven is an assertive type and then your wing, it goes into a different triad, but it's the same type of way to meet a need. So you're a double assertive as a seven, eight, right? Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, so you're going to be like a seven, eight wing or an eight, seven wing is going to be the most assertive people on the planet. Right, because they're 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 that double assertive space, um, 
you're going to look to be like enthusiastic and everything. That's like your common nature. You're not constantly and push back and defend and fight and conquer, but that's there and it's ready to come out. It's flavoring. It's like making dinner and then pouring like a little bit of basil in it. It like infuses it. Yeah. Um, so that kind of gives you a sense. So that's one thing is the assertive withdrawal and dutiful. And then you kind of create like a, a cross reference between that and another um, primary or fundamental pillar, which is conflict resolution style. So when you're in conflict, what is the strategy consciously or unconsciously that you adopt to try to reach reconciliation? And for most of us, that is an unconscious experience. And Enneagram tells us there's three primary ways. One is um, the emotional realist or emotional reactive type, meaning that they lead with emotion and will feel resolved when somebody not just sees and gets the emotion, but sees and gets the one who is experiencing the emotion. So that's like when you really feel empathized with, you feel resolved. A positive outlook type is a second option and they feel resolved when they can orient to benefit of whatever the experience might be like, Oh, this is happening for a reason. There's something good. That's going to come out of it. If we just look at it this way, I feel better. And then the third type is the logical rational type and the logical rational type is trying to understand how that this, um, this upset came to be how this trigger. Oh, it came because I, I thought you meant this, but you thought I meant that. And I misunderstood you. And that pushed on that wound that I had from before. And now that I get that I'm clear, but when you put two types together and let's say that last one I just described is resolved while the emotional person is still sitting there going, but you still haven't gotten me. And so now mm -hmm. I'm left feeling ungotten because you got it and not me or the positive outlook is like, oh, this is great that this came up. I understand this so much better now. And it's like, I'm still floating out here, you know, in Andromeda. <laughs> well, you're feeling great about everything. And now we're missing each other. So understanding our own conflict resolution tendency and then the ones who are in relationship with and what theirs are love is learning another's lens and then being able to speak it and show up in those ways. Well, if you take in each triad, there is each of those two things. So when you put the two together, you're going to have any combination thereof. So if you start to, uh, let me show you, I have this in here. Um, look at each type. So your assertive types, eight, three, and seven, your withdrawals are nine, four, and five, and your dutifuls are one, two, and six. If you can then say, well, I'm, let's say, an assertive type, and then you went to your um, conflict resolution style, and I'll do yours, where you positive outlook, emotional, or logical, and as a positive um, outlook type, then you get your, you combine your positive outlook with your assertive, and you get a type seven and you then put your emotional that emotional realist is in there too we know we know she's there noticing that eight is an emotional realist type 
right? If you're looking at the chart. So mm -hmm. when you cross-reference those two tendencies that I just explained, where they intersect is going to give you um, fundamentally an understanding of your type, which I would wear like a loose fitting garment for like five years. By that, I mean, right. treat it as a hypothesis. Right. So fascinating. And it's funny because as you were describing the seven and I was going to ask about like optimism, if that was like a part of it, because I definitely attempt to try and see everything like some people are like what's the problem and I'm kind of like what's the lesson yeah. right yeah. and then like being able to not get so caught up in what I'm feeling about the happening but allowing myself to move through it and know that and trust because it's it's you know happened to me time and time again that although this happening may not be what my ideal situation you know, was originally intended to be, I can look at it and say, all right, well, this might bring me into a different place. This might bring me to a better place. Another door might open. And that has been like my thought process probably forever. Like, I don't, I don't think I've ever truly been negative. And do I have moments where like, I'm like depressed and I have these bouts of emotions that are kind of dark and gloomy, of course. And I'm, I can get really, really reclusive and private. And sometimes I'm like on air all the time. And sometimes I'm like, I just need my own personal time. I want to close the door. Give me a day, you know, oh, that's but your five coming in. Yeah. Yeah. That's when you, like when I, you move to five, five is a withdrawn investigator. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's exactly what I do. I'm like, I just need to reset and I just need to be with myself and hear myself, you know? So it's so interesting to, how, like the way in which you're, you're describing all of this, how much it is truly relatable for myself. And obviously for you, if you're using this method in, in what you do. So this is just really cool. And also another tool to be able to help guide you through, you know, the process of this human experience in this meat suit. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And what is our relationship to said suit? You know, I mean, that's yeah. part of it too. And, you know, it's for me being in, in the, where my work is in integrating the body type, you know, that that's a big part of it is, is coming home to the physical and, uh, you know, and so understanding, like typically if I've gone offline, my work is not analysis. My work is move a muscle, change a thought and, you know, get, get back in the body as soon as mm. I'm able to. And, you know, and, and so when we understand this, how it might um, inform and influence the way one would approach different healing disciplines. Well, if you know that your work that brings you closer to home, you've said a couple of times now is going to that that five and, and going to the quiet, going to the yin, going to the ground. I know I need to get to the gym. I need to move my body. I need to put a charge back in. Maybe if I've left the heart triad, instead of meditating in certain form, for, uh, forms or expressions of, um, you know, like quieting the mind or um, guided imagery, I'm doing a practice like metta or tonglen or one of the 
heart-centered approaches to meditation that's integrating my heart. Maybe I'm just bringing more bhakti to my asana, right? Maybe not just in the sense of like, I'm doing like back bends and things like that, but maybe I'm practicing with my attention and awareness in my heart. Maybe I'm placing my hand on my heart. Maybe I'm checking in with mm. my heart. What do you need today? And, 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 and I'll meet that need for you. Um, so when we learn how it is that we disconnect from our essence, it tells us the practice to pick up to reconnect. And that's the value <laughs> so role that Enneagram provides. Fuck yeah, so powerful. It's like almost the ability to reclaim, you know, what you feel is like unclaimable or inaccessible. It's like, no, I got this now. Like I, it makes sense. Now I know this, let me try this. That works. That's not like, that's my go-to now. Yeah. And oftentimes in my coaching work, what I realize is we don't even know what it is that we've lost claim um, right. to, in order to reclaim it. So first just to get to go, oh, like, wow, I didn't even know I gave that away or I've been carrying this my whole life and it's not even mine. Like I've, yeah. I've internalized what was modeled in my, you know, family system and, and to be able to like, be able to recognize that and put down what isn't ours and pick up what is true again is an incredibly um, empowering and liberating act. And yes. I think having, having some tools in our toolbox that just help us say, hey, you know, when you show up in ways that are feeling um, defensive, well, remember truth has nothing to defend. So let's go look at what's happening. And we sit down and, and the biggest thing I could leave everybody with is to, to circle back to the, the, the two primary tools in the toolbox is always curiosity and compassion. So before we move out, let's turn towards ourselves, the turning of the heart towards mm -hmm. our own experience and get a little, uh, you know, and actually, if you look at the two things, curiosity is actually a quality of mind and compassion is a quality of heart. So when we bring heart and mind into allyship and we can even anchor that in the body, um, then we've touched all three triads and we start to come home to ourselves. Mm. Such a powerful, informative pod and like very reflective as well. It's like a mirror, like you mentioned earlier, it's like being able to see yourself, you know? And perhaps from a different perspective than the way that you've always seen yourself just by having this awareness and by observing. So, yes. so cool. Oh my gosh. I feel like we need another sesh. We need a one Oh two. I would love that. There's so many more. Layers I know. To it. I know. And I really think that this is such a powerful such a powerful tool in just like what little I knew prior to to doing this podcast and how much more I resonate with it now it makes me makes me want to dive in deep and 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 go further so we will definitely discuss a 102 but holy moly so so much to digest and we didn't even touch on like the personality types or anything. yeah we didn't get into into each type yeah kind of where we we left off here. I've been flown along with this, you know, document that I utilize in my coursework with people. And um, 
and and this next layer where and we can kind of pick up maybe next time and talking a little bit about each type within the context of the relationship of those two qualities of of meeting unmet needs and conflict resolution style and you can see how the um, the pairing of those two things is really the, the primary determinant of type. And then once you get into type, you can really start to look at within each range of health. And then you can start to go into like, what is the message that we received as a child that just got imprinted into our unconsciousness? And then out of that, what is the fear that arose? And then in response to the fear, what is the desire that arose and what does that desire deteriorate into? What are the standards or the ideals that we set out of those desires, the Enneagram of ideals it's called, and what are the things we're in avoidance of, the Enneagram of avoidance that would push on those fears. Then there's the wing types, the instinctual variants we didn't get to talk about, and then the currents of stress and integration, which is moving towards personality or towards essence and so there's just infinitely more layers that equips us to uh, navigate life in a way that is so much more clear and most of all connected to the one that we really are yeah maybe like a 102 a 103 and a 104 <laughs> let's just get to 108 and then we're at the sacred 108 <laughs> yes let's go to 108 so just just i think this is a, actually a really great place to pause and like pick up so um do you just want to share like the names of the nine types and then maybe from there the next time we could just kind of pick up with that that would be great absolutely so type one I, I can give you a quick little description so they can have a sense. So type cool. one is called the reformer. It's the principle, the idealistic type, strong sense of right and wrong. That's a dutiful, logical combination. Um, type two is the helper. They're the caring, empathetic, interpersonal type. That's the dutiful, positive outlook combination. Type three is the achiever. That's the driven, energetic, adaptable type. That's the assertive, logical combination. Type four, the individualist, introspective, creative, sensitive, romantic. Uh, it's the withdrawn emotional type. Type five is called the investigator, the cerebral, intense, independent, innovative type, withdrawn, logical. Type six, the loyalist, committed, responsible, security-oriented. It's dutiful and emotional. Type seven, the enthusiast, optimistic, spontaneous, productive, versatile. It's the assertive positive type. Type eight is the challenger, powerful, dominating, protective, decisive. That's the assertive emotional type. And type nine is the peacemaker, easygoing, steady, accepting, self-effacing. It's the withdrawn positive outlook type. Awesome. And just to close, something that just came up to ask is like, if you were to like present the Enneagram to somebody who really didn't know too much about it, like how would you say that in a couple sentences? Like how would you introduce it in a couple sentences? If it's I think possible. I would, yeah, <laughs> I'm taking a moment to take in the question. Um, but I love to appreciate this question um, is that, Enneagram gives us a reliable 
tool to understand the patterns that influence and inform the way we navigate our lives and to bring those unconscious tendencies into the light of our conscious awareness so that we could operate with greater clarity and connection. Love it. Love that so much. Ah, so great. And again, leaving me wanting more as my seven personality (laughs) comes in. I'm like, wait, hold up. This is something new. Let's go. Let's dive in. There it is. (laughs) There it is. You'll have the book finished by tomorrow. Right? Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much again for taking the time to be with us and sharing your wealth of knowledge. So grateful for you and for what you share and for all that you do. And so looking forward for 102 and Wow. Just so much to digest and so much to process and yet such a blessing to be, you know, presented with such a tool. Mm. And thank you too. I believe that, you know, being in the conversation and the sharing is the blessing and I appreciate the opportunity to share what it is that I, uh, not just what, what I do, but what I love. And I hope it's of benefit to everyone who's had a chance to listen. Absolutely. Big virtual hug. Thank you. Thank you. And we will connect again. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good one. Appreciate you. you. Bye-bye.